How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. It's estimated that one quarter of food that lands on American plates actually ends up in landfills, releasing potent greenhouse gases. Today we'll discuss our national food system and what could be done to make it more efficient. What are the sources of food waste on farms, in stores, and in our homes and schools? What role do picky consumers have in creating waste? Can composting be part of the solution? Does America produce too much food for its own good? Here to discuss those topics and more with our live audience in San Francisco, we have three food experts. In the center, Jonathan Bloom is, American, is author of American Wasteland, a book all about the food we dump into the trash and down the drain. Michael Dimmick is president of Roots of Change, an advocacy organization in the Bay Area. And A.G. Kawamura is a farmer from Orange County who served for seven or eight, eight years? Seven years as California's Secretary of Food and Agriculture under Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Um, Jonathan, let's start with you. What are the biggest sources of food waste in America? Uh, well, when you look at food waste, where it comes from, uh, you think about the entire food chain. Uh, it's really distributed fairly equitably from farm to fork. Um, but whenever I talk to individuals, I find that, that many of them just assume that it comes from elsewhere. But in fact, there was a study in New York, and they looked at one county's food waste. And the conclusion they came up with was that the majority of it, 40%, or the largest portion, came from households. So there's good and bad news there. Um, the bad news is that we're pretty darn wasteful as individuals, but the good news is that we can really have an impact on the issue. Well, we're going to come back to that. We're going to kind of go from the farm to the store to the home. Uh, Michael Dimmick, uh, what do you see as some of the causes of all this waste? You study the food system in a systemic way. What, what's underneath the, the, the waste of our food? I think the primary thing is how we think. I think the primary challenge is uh, really of, of, of the 21st century about how, how we think about the world. And the fact that we even uh, conceptualize that there is waste in the food system is the beginning of it. Um, because all of, the, all of the food that is in the chain is actually uh, organic material that has value somewhere else in the chain. And so it's really um, changing our consciousness about what is waste or what is not. Um, that's the first step in changing, uh, really combating this problem. Well, let's get down to the farm. AJ, you're a farmer. You, you have a farm. Uh, what are the sources of, of uh, waste on, on farms in, in California in particular? Well, if you think about it, uh, whether you're a fruit and vegetable grower, whether you're a wheat grower, uh, in our country you, you see a tremendous drive to try and always enhance your efficiencies on farm, yeah, whether it's in terms of production or your harvest you know that there's a tremendous amount of waste that does take place in the culling of grade A, number one stuff. There's a lot of perfectly good fruits and vegetables, for example, that never make it into the box. There's a lot of uh, products that, uh, uh, because of the pickiness, as you say, of a, of a consumer or the pickiness of a chain store, that don't want to see product that's marred, that actually will rot a little bit faster if they don't sell it fast enough. So there's a driver for waste in that respect, in just our grading system. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, waste sometimes if we can't get to a product because of weather uh, or, or, or there's an impact in our, your harvest systems. But uh, I, I think what's a, a big difference between where we are, say, in the United States uh, as opposed to uh, some of the, the developing countries, uh, you hear that we waste about 30, 25, 30 percent of the food uh, after it gets on the table in, in, in the right. United States. In so many other countries, they're losing about 40% before it ever gets to the table. So uh, I know we're going to talk about the United States today, but in the bigger picture, we have tremendous inefficiencies on both sides, both pre-harvest and post-harvest. So how much gets left at the farm? I mean, it's a lot of 
apples don't ever get in the box because the farmer says, look, no one's going to buy this. I'm going to leave uh, it here. It's really a function of the marketplace. If, if right now we've had tremendous freezes all over the state, I will guarantee you most of the guys, most of the producers that do have a crop because there's a shortage, they're going to harvest everything that looks like an apple or everything that looks like a, a head of lettuce and get it in a box because there's a market for it. When we create tremendous abundance, sometimes the market gets driven down so low that they can't afford to go back and harvest a second time, go back into a field a second time or third time because the price is too low. It won't pay for that cost of labor to get in there and put it in a box, put it, cool it, put it on a truck, send it to some store, and watch that price be so low they'd rather walk away from it. So there's some different drivers on why uh, waste occurs, but certainly market is a, is a big part of that. We'll get to some of the big drivers later in the farm bill, et cetera, but it's okay. So a lot of it never leaves the farm. Then it goes to the store. What happens at the store? At the store level, uh, again, a, a consumer that is relatively picky will look at product, and if it happens to be one day old, or if it's five days old, uh, if it has a blemish, if it doesn't look right, uh, if prices are, uh, maybe, maybe I should back, backtrack and just say, when you create such an abundance of goods, and that's a difference between a scarcity of goods, then there's a sense that um, if something doesn't get sold, oh, well, it'll get thrown away or used for some other process, maybe compost. But it's, it's a part of an, a system of abundance. A system of scarcity, you won't see as much waste, obviously, because you're in, you're in a situation Because we scarcity. can afford to waste. Jonathan Bloom, you write about the vanity, I don't know if you use that word, but of uh, consumers and, and the pickiness and how they only, you know, only perfect apples, nothing less. Talk about what you learned in the researching of your book about the sort of psychology of consumers in the supermarket. Yeah, I like to, to view it as the squeamishness factor. And I think that today's consumer has gotten away from the idea of if there's a blemish on something, you take out your paring knife and you cut out that bad spot. Um, and so I understand if you're in the supermarket and you see an apple that's perfect next to one with a bad spot, you're going to take the perfect one. But that doesn't mean that the blemished apple is then trash. So um, it's doing something else with it, selling it at a discount maybe, or donating it, or possibly even creating another product from it. Um, but in terms of the, the American consumer's psyche, uh, I think that we've gotten to this point where we see beautiful food everywhere, uh, the rise of food TV and glossy magazines. Uh, everywhere we turn, it seems, we're, we're constantly facing these images of food that looks pretty, and so appearance trumps taste. And if there are dramatic effects throughout the food chain where there's this culling process throughout from farm to fork of, of anything that doesn't look perfect or is not the right shape or size, that um, isn't homogenous, all that is culled out somewhere along the line. So why isn't there, I mean, we can buy used clothes, used cars, things, day-old bagels. Uh, there's no sort of secondary market for, for that apple that's a little bit unloved but still pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to encourage it. Um, the idea of, of buying fruit with some personality, uh, <laughs> you know, something that looks a little bit funny. But um, I think the people who buy at farmer's markets or grow their own um, will have a different approach to food and recognize that it doesn't have to look perfect. Um, and, and the other thing I should say is that uh, some of the reason there's this culling is that uh, in terms of shape um, and size is just how things are sold. So uh, apples that are a certain size, you know, they, they sell them by the box where uh, they have certain uh, numbers on them. And so if, if it's not that size, they can't use it. Um, and the same thing goes with something like a cucumber that's a bit curved. It's not going to fit in the box, so there's no use for it. So with something like that, we just need to find a different approach. But selling groceries is a really low-margin business. You'd think there would be an economic incentive for the, the people. They have to pay to haul it away. Um, they don't discount uh, yesterday's produce. Or the, the, let's talk about sort of what's happening in the store. Why aren't there economic incentives to, to sell this stuff rather than pay to have someone haul it away, Michael? Well, I think... Um Again, it's about a marketplace for the material, in a sense, that hasn't really fully developed. But I think there are some drivers. We have talked earlier uh, tonight about some of the drivers that are in place that could change the value of these things. One of the things, I think, is actually hunger. So you do see now that a lot of misshapen fruits or vegetables are being picked up in gleaning programs or other programs where farmers are delivering to um, 
food banks, for instance. Uh, so there's a, a market, in a sense, developing. There's at least demand developing. And there's even talk about uh, low payments to farmers so that they can actually hire the crews to go in and, and harvest, three cents a pound, things like that. We've, we've talked about this in the past. There so are a leading program is where a farmer goes yeah. and picks up yeah. the leftover so, to... Yeah, what, what okay. you would call the, the culls, the, pro, the, the food that can't make the market. Now, I think uh, another thing to think about is uh, the demand for compost. Um, as we move into this post-carbon world where we're going to have to figure out how to manage carbon releases and nitrogen releases, the materials that are organic are going to have value for placement on the land, increasing value. It already does. I mean, there are lots of farmers, organic farmers, other farmers who are, who are trying to buy compost in larger and larger amounts. And so these materials could eventually become of great value because if you talk to the, the thinkers about organic farming systems, they will tell you the problem is that Getting enough carbon for the system is is a challenge. Um, I was just at a talk on a farm, a green string farm up in Sonoma County three weeks ago, three weekends ago, and, and they were talking about certain philosophy of some farmers is to grow 50% of their products so they can have enough organic material to keep the soil fed. So that starts to change the economics if you... If you um, Food as an input as well as an output. Right. Yeah. And then they leave it on the ground, or they have to haul it somewhere, compost it, and then bring it back and Some is left. Some is composted. depends on the material. Fruits might go through a process of being um, graded, boxed, sold. The others would be used for processing, right, efficiencies. Some might be sold for cattle feed or, or other animal field, and then some may be composted on site and returned to the land. So if composting is, is economic and logical, why aren't more people doing it, AG? Well, I, I think maybe just to even backtrack it one more time is you talk about the perishability of products. There's, you know, some products are enormously perishable. Some last a long time. So there is a system in place throughout uh, really this country and especially our state of California for dealing with some of these products, uh, whether it's day-old bread, whether it's uh, uh, the, the dollar-a-bag produce that is sold yeah. in stores, many stores. Um, and then the secondary market then that exists for those products, including uh, animal feed products. And that goes back to whether it's a coal bin off of a processing shed that would go then to feed cows or pigs or, or chickens, or whether it's a, um, a system that's in place to basically go towards the compost uh, pile. So uh, it's to say in our state, especially California, and I, I always love to brag about California, that it's not that we're perfect, it's not that we're uh, you know, where we want to be, but we're really pretty far ahead in many of these areas in trying to ha have a higher utility, if you will, of the food products that we're growing. There's value in all of them, as Michael was saying. There's value in these products. There's value for the, un un you know, the under uh, underserved fo uh, community to really move a lot of product. There's some great projects from the food banks that's allowing farmers to take product instead of disking it down and under. Uh, there's a great program called Farm to Table that's allowing farmers to go in and actually harvest that crop, get it into a food bank, and at least be compensated for the labor and the cost of getting that, but not for the cost of growing it. So, and, and it doesn't undercut their, it's not They're not competing with themselves by, that's right. by underselling and, their own and, and these become excellent programs if they can be, especially if they can be funded, because there is a lot of product that doesn't meet uh, the urgency of, a, pro of a, a perishable crop that needs to be harvested today. Otherwise, two, three, four days later, it's, you, might as well just, you might as well just disc it down. A.G. Kawamura is a former Secretary of California Food and Agriculture. Our guests today also at Climate One are Michael Dimmick, President of Roots of Change, and Jonathan Bloom, author of American Wasteland. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's think about the large truck that leaves a supermarket full of organic waste. That store pays a lot of money for that to be hauled away, goes in a landfill somewhere. Uh, let's talk about the economics of that, why that store is paying a lot of money to haul things that, A.G., you say is full of value, and it goes into a landfill where it emits greenhouse gases. I would say depending on where in the state or where in the country that takes place, you do have folks that are voluntarily taking that instead of a cost to the chain store. They're willing to come and get that product and take it into a compost area because they know they can turn a compost uh, operation and then sell that product back to the farm community. So that, 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 that you have both of that going on. You do have a lot of product going into the landfills. And the landfills someday, uh, 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 without any doubt, will become actually a place of value instead of a place of waste. How so? Well, if you think about a landfill, it's got a lot of biomass in it. It has plastics. It has metals. Um, all those pro products at this point, uh, there's some great processes taking place that you can pull those products out and turn them into a value-added product. A 
product with value instead of a waste product. Plastics right now, there's a pyrolysis uh, compression uh, 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 technology that drives plastics back into crude oil. So the minute you start to see that happening, especially if you drive that with a renewable energy source, all the plastics sitting in every landfill suddenly have value. It's a high-quality crude oil. There's a company up in Seattle that's actually up and running, not pilot project, but actually up and running and doing that. But they've got to extract the plastic along with all the other organic things right. from that landfill. That separation's got to be a huge, because we don't separate upstream here in this When country. the barrel price of gasoline, you know, of, of oil is uh, over $100, Suddenly, those projects, as I understand it, about a $45, $50 barrel in oil, dollars a, a barrel cost, is, it allows them to compete in that process of taking the extra effort to get the plastics and go through that process. So uh, you have some drivers that actually make that work. Michael, do you think we're going to be sort of extracting value from landfills? That- I, I actually do, and I, I, I want to say that in some communities in the state, we are separating. We are separating. Uh, I know just, I mean, San Francisco's separating. We have a whole green waste program. Sonoma County's separating. So they've got the, the landfill in Sonoma County has a place called Sonoma Compost, contracting to the county, and they're taking all the green waste and they're producing compost and it's going back to the farms and, and ranches in Sonoma County. It's, and that, so we have that loop has been created, and, and it's not unique. It's happening in other places. What are the participation rates? How many people in San Francisco or Sonoma actually compost? Very high. Uh, very high rates. I mean, higher than we're projected at this point, uh, particularly in Sonoma County. The, the numbers I'm familiar with because I live up there. So, um, and, you know, it's, I, I have a, we all get a green waste bin. We have a green waste bin. So all your kitchen scraps, meat and bones, um, all your yard waste can go in there if you don't right. compost yourself. I do compost myself, but there are certain things like meat scraps or things like that that I'll put in the green waste because they have a, a much better composting system, higher heats to kill bacteria, things like that. So I'll let the professionals do that. Um, and I think that I, I see that on my street. My neighbors are that way. And um, so I'm, I'm very hopeful about this taking off in many other places. My kids, certainly, that's their chores. Take out the compost, not take out the trash. Well, yeah. both, actually. Jonathan, do you think we'll be getting value out of, uh, out of landfills? I do. I mean, I think we'll only start to see more and more value in our waste as the price of oil goes up. Um, hopefully, as the cost of sending food to landfill or sending anything to landfill increases, then composting will be a more competitive option. Uh, I always ask, I've been asking supermarket executives for a while now, you know, why they don't separate organics and, and what the barriers are. And the answer I get is price. And the sustainability coordinators at food retailers, they always say, you know, if you can get it at least comparable, then we'll compost. Um, and I think we're getting there. Price, it costs them too much to have their labor separate organics from all the cardboard and other things? Well, they're not as worried as, about that as just the cost of, of the, the tipping fee at landfills. So the cost to send stuff to the landfill. The, the problem here is that unlike in Europe, there's plenty of available land. Um, in California, it's certainly more expensive than much of the rest of the country in terms of throwing things away. But... Um, where I live, it's, it's very inexpensive to throw out anything. So, um, and this is in North Carolina. Uh, as a result, it's hard to get people to compost. But uh, we need to somehow change that balance. Uh, I think we'll get there eventually, but uh, maybe we need some policies to, uh, to drive that behavior change. And are you talking policies? You're talking about raising the tipping fee, making it more expensive to throw things away? Well, it's either the carrot or the stick approach. Um, I mean, you could have tax deductions for people who are composting, or uh, you could somehow uh, put levies or taxes on landfilling. Um, but I think we do need to be a bit more activist in, in how we approach this topic. I saw a startup company once at a conference that it had a system for somehow measuring uh, the amount that people recycle and compost and then creating basically kind of frequent flyer miles, a currency, so that you would be, the more you recycle, the more you, know, you could get a certificate to buy a new DVD player that then later ends up in that compost. That try, anyway, something, um, I think it's a good thing. Um, Jonathan Bloom is author of American Wasteland, and we're here also with Michael Dimmick, president of Roots of Change, and A.G. Kawamura, former secretary of food and agriculture for the state of California.
California. AG, uh, let's pick up on the policy point with you. Are, are there policies that you think you were in California government for a long time, you're now out, the things that California could do to uh, get at these issues? Well, I, I think absolutely there's some great opportunities, and there are already some programs, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that are in place that could help a, a farmer uh, deal with waste on the farm. Uh, I, I'm a farmer, and just the other day we had a field of celery. The market was so bad that we uh, were able to get some of it to the food bank, but believe it or not, we actually disked down some of it. Beautiful celery. market wasn't there. We disked could, out, you discounted? Is we it? disked it. We disked okay. it. We, we, they would call it a one-man harvester on a tractor. Instead of okay. a harvesting crew, you just turn it under, and we couldn't afford to harvest it. We couldn't afford to get it out of the field and, and sold. Um, and this was just before the market turned, but you had to harvest it at that point. So my point, I think, in terms of policies, uh, there's a lot. Um, certainly, uh, the work that's being done within, uh, interestingly, whether it's a farmer's market, uh, many people would know that at a swap meet, which is significantly different from a certified farmer's market, a lot of the products you see in a swap meet are products that people buy off the general terminal markets at discounted prices, turn around and try and sell them then at a, uh, at a swap meet at a, at for, and make a profit, and that product is, if you, would be, if you would, is distressed out of the terminal market but is trying to find a, a, a buyer. Um, at the farmer's market, you have, as, as was mentioned here, uh, there's a little less, uh, I think, demand, depending on the farmer's market, on the quality. I mean, if you have uh, a product that doesn't look quite 100% right in terms of shape, that's one thing. If it has decay on it or worms all over in it, some people think that's protein and it's exciting, you know. But uh, other people would, will just take one look and say, I don't want that. I'm going to buy something else. So y- you have some issues in terms of uh, where you reward people for efficiencies. Um, uh, in, in our state, uh, you're not in business at this point, really, as a producer, if you're inefficient. Uh, that's how you go out of business pretty fast. So. I think where we look for more efficiencies in creating markets for the products that we normally would have thrown away. Mm-hmm. Uh, baby carrots is a great example. Who, who eats baby carrots in a, in a ba- bag? Well, for years that was the throwaway carrots that we used, they get, used to give to the cows. And then someone figured out if they could clean them up, cut them up, and put them in a bag, people might buy them as cocktail carrots or baby carrots, right? Well, every parent and, would love those things. And suddenly everybody's consumption of carrots has skyrocketed, and now they actually grow them for that purpose. There's no such thing as waste in the carrot industry in terms of throwaway carrots anymore. A lot of products are looking, you talked about taking products and turning them into juice or jams or other things, and the processing side of it gives some great opportunities. So not any farmer wants to throw something away if they can find a value for it. A lot of times the systems itself you have to create your own market. You have to create a demand for a product that everybody perceives to be of little value. Maybe it's a little tiny orange uh, that ordinarily wasn't big enough to make someone happy, but suddenly it's an orange that a little kid can peel easily, yeah, yeah. and suddenly those are great markets. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do in that. But the, those policies driven by the, the industries themselves or, or government can actually open the door at a school lunch, for example. There's been some upward food pressure on, on food price, upward price pressure on, on food prices lately. How's that going to affect the waste dynamic? Jonathan? Well, I mean, food is tremendously cheap at this point. When you look at the percentage of household spending that goes toward food, it's about 10% of our household spending. And not only is that at an all time low, but no other nation spends as little on food. So, what, what does that mean? It basically means we don't value food enough. Um, now, I have a hard time sitting here saying food should be more expensive when so many people don't have enough to eat. Uh, at the same time, I would say there is a silver lining to rising food prices and that we'll value it more, we'll be more uh, efficient with it. But, um, but it's, a, it's a tricky question. Um, but on the one hand, I think that it's, it's inevitable that food prices will go up just because they're so low right now. Michael, food prices? Yeah, I, I think this is an interesting thing. Uh, it, it is, it's a challenge. Uh, for, uh, those who have been following the news, obviously there's, there's huge hunger problems in this country, and we know what's going on around the world, Middle East, other places. But um, I, I think there's, there is something interesting here in this country about people becoming more, uh, more interested in controlling their own food supply in some sense, communities. Particularly, I think, low-income communities in this, in, in this country have an opportunity to, to take on this idea of food sovereignty where they develop their own, uh, you know, some portion of their food supplies under their own control in their communities. 
Now, one of the things that's interesting that's developed in West Oakland, I see it up in northern, up, up north of the city here and perhaps here in the city. haven't heard those anecdotes. But uh, there are people that are dumpster diving, right? So they're actually going to the restaurants. They're going to the grocery stores. They're dumpster diving because they have chickens or they have pigs or you know, any kind of livestock. And they will be basically mining the dumpsters in order to feed their animals. Or now, themselves. Or themselves. Yeah, or themselves, yeah, or themselves. The, the stories I've been hearing about recently are, are people that are doing it for animals because they've all of a sudden got, you know, the, the city changes its ordinance, you can have six chickens, you know, so they're out feeding their chickens. Well, it's interesting, but it's, it shows the value of food. It also shows people being creative about how they're going to get their food. And um, it also starts to solve some of these problems with the restaurateurs and, 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 and greengrocers. I'm familiar really with a, a grocery store up in Sonoma County that is, is inviting people to come and take their, their green waste to feed their animals. So I think it's, um, it's an interesting development uh, around, uh, around food pricing and, and food issues. So as it becomes more dear, more valuable, perhaps we'll waste less and some of those market mechanisms come in. Things that weren't economic may become economic now. Right. Well, I know that for many years, restaurants that were always had a challenge and they had leftover meals. If you know, on a rainy day, people don't show up at your restaurant, but you prepared a lot of food. And there were a lot of new rules that came into place that really limited the ability to, for a restaurant to move that food out to a soup kitchen or out to a food pantry because of the temperature control. So food safety has always driven a quite a bit of a, 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 has been a driver in the inability for a restaurant to take that food and, and confidently give it to someone because of the drop in temperature or the lack of care of the product that might create a, a, an E. coli or a salmonella or some kind of a food pathogen problem because of the spoilage that might take place or it doesn't get eaten or the person it's going to doesn't have a refrigerator. So one of the challenges we have in this dialogue, I think it's really important, is we do have tremendous hunger uh, in, in this country. We do have tremendous malnutrition. Now, malnutrition is not eating enough of the right things or too much of the bad things. So uh, that all comes into play in this discussion. But I, I would just want to make that point that uh, we should be, you know, I'm thankful that we have a system of abundance. Can we make it a system of efficiency? Uh, we're lucky we don't have a system of scarcity. And, and that's what I think is one of the things that has to be discussed about where do we go from here? So you wouldn't say that we produce too much. You think we ought to just sort of use what we do produce more efficiently and direct it and distribute it in different ways. I, I certainly believe that's the system we have in place. If, uh, as we were talking about, uh, this is what drives, I think, our country is low food prices. Now, the, you'll have any number of critics that don't like certain kinds of food being so low priced. Okay. You have a lot of critics that would say, you know, this is an inefficient system in terms of the sustainability and how it affects the environment. Okay. And, and these opinions then are, are certainly things that are driving our food system right now. But the fact that I continue to look at as a farmer is, um, is that you, you can't afford to have crop failure. Um, and stay in business. You want to have abundant crops. You want to do the best thing you can with each time you're growing a crop, each harvest system that you get your yield off. The rest of the system that distributes that, that processes, that takes it, that eats it or wastes it, is where there are a lot of work needs to be done. The, the farmer generally uh, can overproduce just as easily as anybody else, but those are driven by market signals that makes him say, I'm going to go and make a bazillion bucks growing uh, wheat this year. A.G. Kawamura is a former Secretary of Food and Agriculture in California. We're discussing food and waste here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Jonathan Bloom, you write about uh, sort of super size me culture, Costco, which you think actually encourages waste, partly because things are so cheap, as just A.G. was talking about. Yeah, I mean, a, a large driver of waste is just the massive portions that were served at restaurants. Uh, it's, it's just reached a point of ridiculousness. Uh, as anyone who's eaten out in the last oh, I don't know, five years, could imagine. But um, also, yeah, and just in terms of the size of produce, for example, and you look at the average apple you see at a store, and, and it's just increased to a point where it's gone from something that might be snack size to something that's calorie-wise almost like a meal. So um, you're seeing more and more uh, apples that you give to a child that more than half would be thrown out. So uh, I think we need to... Get away from this idea that, that bigger is better. And um, there's this Swedish idea of lagom, which is having just enough. Um, and I think it's fascinating that there isn't a direct English translation for that term, um, which totally fits in with our culture. Um, so we need to uh, try to appreciate the beauty of, of having the right amount and not uh, an overabundance.
One of the other drivers here is the uh, growing appetite for animal protein in emerging economies as, as well as here. And how's that affecting the, you know, we want to talk here about climate as well. Um, certainly the, the hunger for animal protein, India, China, and elsewhere is, is a big factor here. And certainly in terms of a lot of grain is grown to, fit, to feed animals. Um, so AG, you know, do you have a comment on, on how that's affecting the world food dynamic? The, well, I do. Uh, you can see that throughout the developing world, especially China and India, you have a tremendous movement towards looking for protein in their diets. Now, protein can come from many different things, but certainly uh, animal products is, is one of the main areas, or fish products also are a big part of that. Um, the need for protein in the human diet is, is clearly stated. Uh, can they get it from other places? The answer is yes. Uh, will they get it from other places, or will they continue to see an increase in the in the drive for animal products? I, I think at least in the foreseeable future, it, it'll continue to be a, a factor of how much does it cost and how much abundance of grains are there for animal production. Um, at the same time, uh, because the markets are driven by demand and f- folks that have the for- ability to pay for those different things, whether it's in the United States or there, I- I- I'm going to say that you s- will still see a tremendous amount of focus on animal production because this is a staple part of a diet. Asking people to change their diets over a generation or overnight, uh, that's a, a dialogue for another, uh, top- that's another topic for another dialogue that I think we might have. But it is, it is a challenge. It is a challenge when people think that because they finally have a chance to buy and purchase proteins, in the forms of meats or fishes, and put them on the table on a regular basis. That's, a, that, that's someone's sense of, of well-being in many ways, in many places, not only in this country, but across this planet. Well-being, status, Michael? Status. Well, I was just thinking that I, I do think that, that the current system we have for animal agriculture has lots of room to evolve. I'll say it that way. I mean, there, um, uh, particularly, I think, in, in, uh, in beef, there's a lot more room for less grain, more grass, um, and uh, which has, uh, I think, a positive impact in many ways, uh, environmentally and in terms of food, world food prices. Um, I think there's room there for some change, and I, and I think there are a lot of uh, ranchers around the country now who are beginning to, to see the advantages of, 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 of less grain, more grass. Um, and, and so I think there's, there's, you know, if you start to apply that broadly across the world, we've developed a system of feeding grains to animals here as part of modern agriculture, or 20, I, what I will say is 20th, 20th century agriculture. I think there's probably a, a lot of room for a, a change in that system that could be global so that we don't need to produce as much grain if, uh, as we think we might for animal agriculture based on how we used to do it or how we have, are doing it currently. So I think there's, there's some hope in this area um, uh, around food prices and, and economies, I mean, ec- ecological impacts and, and human health impacts. Because we know that, that grass-fed beef um, seems to have uh, a healthier fat content associated with it. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's a lot of room and there is change underway. But is that going to be a mainstream, scalable thing, or is that going to be sort of an elitist, whole foods kind of, you know, grass-fed beef? If you go in the heartland of the average person, and that may sell well in Berkeley or Palo Alto or Cambridge, but is that going to really work on the heartland? I, I think it is. I mean, some of the, some of the actually, some of the, the biggest uh, grass-fed beef operations are in the Midwest. Um, some of the, the ones that are at commercial scale, you might say. Some of those that are selling into, into large chains. They are from the Midwest, the upper Midwest particularly. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if we think back to how animal, animals existed, they, they moved. They moved to where the grasses were. So you can imagine, and there are ranchers doing this, who start in the south and move their animals uh, with the weather so that they can maintain contact with green grass because that's how animals weigh, uh, mm-hmm. gain weight. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there are ranch, ranching operations now in Montana and other places where ranchers are collaborating, letting their animals move from one ranch to the other, depending on where the grasses are, are, are healthiest at any given time. So I think there's a lot of room to change here, and I think it's exciting what's happening. Because that sounds like a commune or something. Well... <laughs> I wouldn't say it's collaboration. a collaboration. It's a, it's a, no, collaboration. Anyway. No, collaboration. Co-opetition. 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 There you go. But let's talk about some of the underlying farm bill policies here, because we've touched on a little bit that some things are certainly very, very cheap. Um, you know, it, corn, are, are we sort of uh, contributing this by making certain commodities very cheap because we can feed them to animals and, and export them? AJ? Well, um, Currently, you wouldn't call corn or any of the grains cheap. They're seeing some of the record prices because of the 
really significant shortages you're seeing because of whether it's uh, Australia going underwater uh, in their floods, uh, although there's still a drought on the west side. Um, Argentina has a pretty good drought going on. You have northern China with a significant drought that's taking place. So you've already seen an impact, and then the cost of uh, of oil will also drive the harvest costs for machinery and stuff. But what you're seeing is is a very, very unstable uh, world food supply in, in, in all actuality. Uh, we always say um, unpredictable weather will mean unpredictable harvest. And I think some of the strategists out there today, they're not worried so much about the weather change in the short term as much as they are about the instability that comes from enormously high food prices. We were talking about poverty. When suddenly your cost of food is up 100% because your main meal is, a, is rice or it's a, it's a wheat product, a bread product, or, or a corn product, and suddenly that's gone up 100%. And you mentioned when some people are spending 40, 50, 60% of their income on food, and suddenly that's ramped up so that there's nothing left that's where this instability is taking place. And that's where I think, as you look at all the global departments of agriculture, I guess, trying to scramble and think about how this food system is going to work in the 21st century, that's where you have to have a glimmer of hope that maybe we can leave some of the worst stuff behind in the 20th century and get into a 21st century system, a sustainable system that actually is a little more predictable, a little bit better for your environment, but also a little bit more equitable in terms of how it fits and works in the different societies. And it's not one size fits all. I've always said this. Anybody who thinks it has to be big or small, maybe they just don't get it. It's going to be big, it's going to be small, it's going to be in between. It's just going to be a system that you hope that everybody's doing well, but invariably one system or another fails. One system in some place doesn't do well because it's agriculture. It's not, it's not a factory that's guaranteed. Resilience. And so that's what we want is resilience in the system. A.G. Karamura is former Secretary of California Department of Food and Agriculture. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing food and waste at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we're about to go to audience questions. We're going to bring the mic out here. I'm going to ask Jonathan one more question. I invite you again, if you're on this side of the room, to please go out there and form the line over here on this side. I invite you to come up and uh, ask your questions so we can bring the mic out. I'm going to um, just ask Jonathan. AG mentioned uh, other countries. You went to Britain and studied. They have kind of an integrated view of food waste and climate change in the United Kingdom. Tell us what you learned there. Yeah, well, I mean, they're certainly more progressive there than we are in terms of the issue of food waste. And what I found was that there's a, a funding that's coming from the government, and that began a few years back. And what that's done is created this abundance of data and, and really good numbers on how much is wasted. And, and that's tricky stuff to come up with. Um, it has been so in the U.S., where... Uh, we're not quite sure exactly how much we waste. It's, you know, 25 to 50% somewhere in there. But uh, because there's this great data, then the media has latched onto these numbers and uh, possibly come up with some sensationalistic headlines, which they're great at doing. But what it's done is it's gotten the public attention, and it's really caused the average Briton to pay attention to waste where they might not otherwise so uh, hopefully that can be a bit of a model for, uh, for how we proceed here in the States. They waste on average, we've got one pound less per person per day, and they have this, they, I guess they have a particular wow. minister that you went to visit who sort of their job is to kind of, as a member of parliament, go after waste, food waste. Yeah, uh, they have yeah, the equivalent of a cabinet member here uh, who's, you know, it's part of his job to, to focus on this issue, but... Uh, certainly something that they're talking about. And, and currently in the U.S., there isn't anyone in the entire federal apparatus who's thinking about reducing food waste. And that's something that I think needs to change. Or connecting it to uh, the climate. Uh, let's have our first question, please. Hi, my name is Carrie Stoller. I'm a student at Presidio Graduate School working on getting a green MBA uh, here in San Francisco. And I'm just curious, I'm actually in a class right now um, looking at a product or service that would help combat food waste, and I'm curious uh, to tap the wealth of knowledge in front of me. Uh, if you could think of one product or service, or perhaps a few, what do you think could perhaps take the biggest bite, no pun intended, um, out of some of the problems that we're facing? Thank What's you. the silver bullet for an enterprising MBA student? You're expecting me to give away a million-dollar idea? You can sell it to her later, yeah. For a few uh, I mean, there are many uh, applications here, but um, I think if we could create some sort of biodigester on a small scale, 
uh, whether it's each supermarket having this anaerobic digester behind the store where they could create energy from food waste uh, or, or even something on a larger scale like a, a town or city having their own. Um, I think that's going to be something that is increasingly common as, as people have energy issues and, and the price of energy goes up. So waste energy. Any, yeah. any, Michael? I'd create, a, I'd create a, some sort of a subscription website for all the chicken farmers who live in the cities now where they could actually identify product. I mean, um, where they can feed their, feed their animals. Uh, because I, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a, I can tell you afterwards, I guess I can't remember the name of the company right now, but there is a company, there's a, a, a guy that's an expert on chicken farming. He's on Twitter, he's on Facebook. That guy uh, has contact with all the chicken farmers that are emerging around the country right now, and there might be a way to uh, supply them with some, some you know, data that would be worth some money. It's very popular to raise chickens in Berkeley or other places in urban situations. AJ? I would certainly say that one project that continues to be an outstanding project is that farm uh, to table project with the food banks where they can really go after uh, product that's going to be wasted at the farm level and, and help that farmer get that product out of his field and into, and actually that product is as fresh and as good as anything you could possibly get in a chain store if they do, when, they, when it's done right. And that process could work very, very well with the, with the farmers throughout the country, especially in our state as well, because we grow a lot of fruits and vegetables and nuts. Next question, please. Hi, yes. Uh, my name is Jonathan Kaplan. I work at an environmental group called the Natural Resources Defense Council. I, I was surprised to hear so much discussion this morning about composting and dumpster diving and, and now waste to energy. It seems to me that really the focus should be on preventing food waste, not uh, treating it or managing it. You know, given the fact that uh, maybe 80% of our developed water supply in California goes to growing food, if we're throwing away a third or a quarter of that, it seems to be an astonishing loss of resources that deserves more than composting. And I'm wondering what you think the top uh, priorities or opportunities are for preventing the food waste. If you were a CEO at Walmart or the Congress or the Secretary of Agriculture, what would you do? What are the top, uh, what are your, what are the top, uh, the biggest opportunities for preventing the most amount of food waste? Jonathan? Well, you're, you're exactly right. Um, reduction is the, the word in this game here. Um, and it should take priority over what we do with that waste. Uh, the problem there is that to reduce waste, you have to prompt behavior change. So it's more difficult than just composting it or creating energy from that waste, but, um, but not impossible. So what we need to do is, is convince the public that it's a behavior that is worth changing. And, uh, and my, dream to, my dream scenario to reduce the amount of waste would be to ban it from landfills. So ban organics from landfills, and I think that would have a ripple effect throughout the food chain. Michael, you were involved in uh, City of San Francisco sustainability efforts, and San Francisco went through some heat before when they... We had to mandate composting, and, oh, there's the trash police, and that sort of thing. Is that viable? Um, well, I, I think it, it, it ties to a couple of things. I think it ties to markets. I think it ties to oil. I think um, oil prices. I think as, as we redefine what is seen as waste, um, I, I think it is viable. I think people are thinking right now about how do we save money in this economy, how do we, how do we get smart about how we utilize our money. I mean, look at the Congress right now. That's a, that's a, that's a potent conversation. Um, but I, I think Jonathan's question is, is important, and I, I'd like to make a comment on that. Sure. I think that um, uh, part of what goes on, uh, if you look at grocery store waste, you know, the shrink that happens in grocery stores or the shrink that happens in people's homes. Um, those are Sorry, two, Shrink is a word for, I mean, yeah, for waste, waste. What, what's not actually used. So, um, there are two, so those are two leverage points or two places where you could work on the problem. And maybe one would be to say to the grocery stores, you know, there is some sort of a fee associated with uh, sending that to the landfill. There's got to be another use. That would give them an engine for not wanting to overbuy or to, to manage their, 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 uh, their crop or their purchases more efficiently. The other is in households, because I know I'm, I'm guilty of this. I will find, I go to the farmer's market every weekend. I buy a bunch of food because it looks so beautiful, and then I end up not using it all. If I was just to get, uh, have some opportunity for, for preserving those foods or learning how to preserve them or preserving with others in my community, you know, some of that food could be saved. So I think there are a couple of places. On the farm, I'm less actually worried about it because 
there's not, I don't think there's a ton of waste in most cases. Sometimes, especially crops, market collapses, but a lot of stuff can be used um, as, as animal feed and other sources. So mm-hmm. there's less waste on the farm probably per unit than there is certainly in a grocery store or in a home. I'd sure like to, not that I like defending the grocery stores uh, regularly, sometimes the, you, you end up with a, uh, the relationship between the producers and the grocery stores that is either very good or sometimes it's very tough. But I, I think the grocery stores are also driven by costs. Uh, and there's two kinds of costs. They can't afford to have a lot of shrinkage, a lot of waste, because they've overordered. Uh, someone gets fired pretty quickly when that happens, especially on perishable items. Um, but at the same time, they also recognize when customers come into the store to have those shelves full is where they get their best buy because now you're talking about maybe the most important word that we haven't really mentioned here tonight is restraint. Um, mm. Is there restraint on the part of the public not to buy so much? That will drive everything else back the other way. Uh, if you think you need one bunch of bananas that's gigantic or you only really need a few because you're gonna, you know you're going to throw some of those bananas away, you know, what, what do you do if you think you're going to buy the bigger package because it looks like it's, you know, the supersizing of things. Yeah. All that plays into do we really know what we're going to consume on a daily basis and so is restraint as much a part of this as anything else because, again, I'll believe all day long that I'd rather have a system of abundance than a system of scarcity. I'd love to see a system that has great efficiencies driven from the public all the way up to the producers and, you know, from the table back to the farm. We can and we will do that as we deal with the challenges that will create scarcity or the challenges that create an unstable food supply. Right now, we're pretty darn lucky we don't have that situation. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Julie Gillen. I'm a nurse at UCSF, and uh, my sense of well-being comes from not having meat on my plate. And with Bill Clinton adopting the um, plant-based diet, I'm kind of curious how many people in your field are really taking that as a goal to move forward for many, many reasons. I think, I think people are generally talking about eating less meat. Uh, I listened to an actually very interesting KQED news program last night about meat. Um, 2% of the population are vegetarians, is according to the, 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 the talk on the radio. And um, the USDA did a study, and they, they interviewed thousands of vegetarians to identify them. And then they went back 30 days later, and they asked them, you know, when was the last time you ate meat? It turned out... 40% of them or 50% of them eat meat in the last week, which was very interesting. So they were eating fish or other things. So the, the, this guy was actually promoting the use, the, the, the whole idea of eating less meat. That was the basis of his study because of health reasons, environmental reasons, economic reasons. So um, uh, what he was saying is, though, that, that it's, it's, um, it's difficult because humans are tied to protein, and it's very difficult for them, even if they identify as a vegetarian, often they'll eat chicken or fish. So um, I think that there are a lot of people now talking about Meatless Monday. That's one of the big things. Michael Pollan talks about it all the time. If you follow Twitter or Facebook, you see that all the time today there was a bunch of stuff out about Meatless Mondays. So I try to practice that. I think it's a good thing to do. Um, and I think just eating less meat is, is, is a smart act as a human being. Certainly, there's a lot of information about yeah, eating. What we eat in terms of our carbon footprint can be as important as what we drive in terms of reducing our carbon impact. Anyone else on yeah. that? Um, the, the only thing I'll add is that you know, if you are going to eat meat, um, that's the one thing I would say we really should go, uh, should make a strong effort to be efficient in what we consume and try and eat all of it. Um, if you're okay with killing something to consume, you should consume it. Um, and so there's that ethical impact there, but also the environmental drivers of uh, just how much grain and, and water and fuel it takes to, to produce that meat. So it's not the most efficient food. So if we're, we're going to eat that, we really should eat all of it. I'd make an observation that one of the new technologies coming along that people read a lot about is about algae. And that algae, uh, certain kinds of algae create an enormous amount of, uh, of different kinds of fats and uh, the omega-3s and some of the better uh, fats. And when that algae then becomes available to be a food supply, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that starts to play into the, the challenges that come from uh, people perceiving the grain challenges and ethanol, grain, uh, and all, the, all that part that comes, that's coming into play as a criticism of the food system that we have now. Uh, making it harder, uh, higher costs for um, higher costs for the public. Or, okay. or so, algae as a food source for animals or for humans? Both. 
certainly both. So potentially a, it, it, a, another it, non-animal protein source. It's just interesting that that's, that's, that, that's, that's a technology that's well on its way towards becoming more of a mainstreamer. You don't see a whole lot of it right now, but there's a lot of it going on. A.G. Kawamura is former Secretary of California Food and Agriculture. We're also here today with at Climate One with Michael Dimmick, President of Roots of Change, and Jonathan Bloom, author of American Wasteland. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next question, please. Thank you. Um, uh, my question is about uh, tying the bridge between food and climate. Uh, I really like the description of uh, from the farm to fork, uh, Jonathan, and I think that looks at sort of the life cycle analysis of food. What does it take for a consumer to maybe actually look at the products and get sort of an eco-label that, that processed Salisbury TV dinner has a far bigger footprint than, like, the rice that comes out of a bulk box. So, when do you uh, get to this label that informs consumers? Well, I think we need to build awareness of the, the carbon impact of food and then of food waste. So uh, in my mind, there needs to be a public awareness campaign. Uh, that could be something that's explicitly created uh, or just something that happens uh, sort of a little more piecemeal when there's better data on food waste and the, the climate impact of it. But, um, but certainly there are a tremendous amount of resources that go into our food. So there's that carbon impact. And then on the other end of the spectrum, when we send food to landfill, there's that methane impact. So, um, you know, communicating that message to people, I think there are a couple of different ways we could go, but uh, hopefully that will happen one way or the other. I was just going to say that the, what you see happening, and you see happening actually on a faster pace than I, I think most people anticipated, is that when people become conscious about what their food supply is and take their dollar and consciously buy a food system, if you will, that fits their uh, well-being, uh, as was asked, the question was asked, uh, that's how you see a fit, uh, the food system change. Uh, and virtually overnight in some areas and some places, is that people will uh, change the food system because the dollar drives the food system. It's not some system that exists uh, independent of that. So as the consumer really starts to think about uh, whether it's health, whether it's environment, whether it's local economies that will drive a food system, that's where I think we have the greatest opportunity to make people conscious to say, spend that dollar. Every day you're going to eat, every single day. So spend the money where you can see it will change your food economy, your food uh, production system, your food uh, ethic, whatever you want, but that's the driver. But won't processed food companies and food suppliers resist additional labeling on processed foods or any kind of food, whether it's for water or for climate impacts? Won't they fight that in Sacramento? I think you'll find the food companies that are out there are are pretty savvy. I mean, obviously they are because they they are. They're good um, at getting to, to buy their they stuff. They are, yeah. so they'll, they'll recognize marketplace, and they'll actually be running to try and fill that demand as it starts to come up. And you're starting to see that everywhere. Look at the kind of products you're buying these days. Uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, they didn't exist, but now you start to see, uh, again, a food ethic starting to arise. You're starting to, see, uh, 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 you're starting to see a willingness to look at our food systems. Uh, whether it's food stamps, whether it's uh, school lunches, whether it's all the feeding programs in this state or any other state, there's a willingness to look at that and say, that system is not working too good. Why don't we fix it? Why don't we align our systems so that we can deal with a new kind of scalability that makes some sense? Do you think more transparency and labeling is coming, Michael? I think it's developing. Um, I think you know, the early adopters will set the pace, and as they gain advantage from doing it, um, more people will move in that area. Uh, I'm hopeful, but I do think that there is some truth to the fact that, um, uh, I mean, just take genetically modified organisms. There's a lot of people that don't want to label that because they fear the impact on the purchasing uh, of those foods. So there are, in certain cases, I think there are, uh, that, you know, the, the established manufacturers that control the market in one sense or ha- are the biggest players will slow change. But I do think that there are there are all the innovators who will, you know, keep going, and, and they will affect the markets over time. So, uh, you know, I, I think it could be pushed faster if there was some public policy associated with it, with, it, with transparency. Required disclosure. Like, I think we may see some required disclosure on, on calorie content on menus, that sort yeah. of thing. Okay. Uh, next question, please. Hi, I'm Carol Benedetto, and I was just in Hawaii, lucky me, eating really delicious local avocados every day. And I learned that there's 200 types of avocados down there, and they're like there's something always 
ripe, but that 50, I think it's 50% of them get wasted because the groceries buy avocados from Mexico, Haas avocados, which don't really taste very good. And so the question is probably a policy question. Um, so they can't export the avocados because of these really stringent, um, I guess, USDA regulations. So they're saying, well, we need to educate the people locally to buy local avocados, but then again, they can't buy them at the groceries because they're not, they're not easy to sell, supposedly. So I just wonder how, like, what they can learn from California or, or how you would address that from a policy level. AG, California exports lots of... Uh... I'll, I'll put on that Department of Ag hat on one more time just to remember that the reason a lot of the products coming out of Hawaii can't be shipped anymore is because they allowed an enormous amount of fruit flies, uh, multi, multiple species, to become well-established everywhere throughout Hawaii. And so, as, and unfortunately, those fruit flies then get their, their larvae into the inside of the different foods. Avocados is one of them, and, and that basically precludes them, unless they have a treatment, a fumigation kind of treatment or something, from being able to ship those back out to the, the states. Um, the challenge of why they're importing uh, a ton of, uh, whether it's from Mexico, whether it's from California, other products from other countries into Hawaii, that's, uh, again, a, a, a driver that is at the market level why can't they create their own regional food system? I know there's a lot of folks over there that are starting to look at that model because they recognize when suddenly the ships don't show up at the port anymore, like it did a couple of years ago in the Longshoremen Strike, they have tremendous vulnerability. And there's been a movement in Hawaii to try and create regional food systems. But at, in, at this point, it's still a matter of um, whether, you know, the people are going to the stores, they're not going to the stands. Uh, the, the people that go to a restaurant expect a certain kind of food quality. All those kind of things are drivers in the system that they have. So I don't know if that answers the question other than the fruit fly side. is uh, they, If they can put those into greenhouses or something, then they can easily ship them. But it's tough to put the rest of the state at, at risk with fruit flies. Next question. Hi, my name is Eleanor Hicks. Jonathan, I know that in researching your book, you worked at a grocery store and a McDonald's. Is there any sense in these places where uh, food is being wasted or these huge proportions are being served that um, there is a problem that needs to be solved with some urgency or immediacy? Um, Well, at the supermarket where I worked, to be honest, uh, waste was just kind of seen as a cost of doing business. Um, Unfortunately, that's just the reality of the the produce market and the produce industry. Uh, So... A good amount of my day was spent culling displays and looking through bag salads for the ones with the expiration date or the sell-by date of, of that day. Uh, so it was, it was a bit sad, but um, actually there was a happy ending to the story. I was able to put that supermarket in touch with a food recovery group who then would start coming to the store and getting those foods to people who needed them. Uh, in the restaurant industry, that is a little bit more difficult to pull off, uh, as AG alluded to earlier, where there are some, uh, some food safety issues there. But, but I would want to say that uh, in many cases, it, it can be done. Uh, a lot of restaurants kind of hide behind the, uh, the legalities and the liability issues, and there is a federal Good Samaritan Act that protects them from donating food that in their conscience is, is healthy to eat. So uh, as long as they follow a few procedures, they can donate that food. Unfortunately, what tends to happen is uh, that doesn't happen very often. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Dana Gunders. I work with the Natural Resources Defense Council also. Um, first, I wanted to thank Jonathan for just writing this book and bringing this issue to light. I think it's really under the radar for... Ninety-nine point nine percent of us, and so it's it's refreshing to see it getting some airtime. Um, my question is around perverse economic incentives, and you know, not unique to food. I think there's the more people sell, the more money they make. But with retailers, you know, you see these buy one get one free um, sales, and just back through the chain, the more produce that gets sold or or perishables, food in general, but I think specifically around perishables, the more they get sold, the more people make money. So how do we rectify the perverse economic incentives that are driving up until the consumer buys it? Um, And also, are there other perverse economic incentives in the chain that are driving waste as well? 
AG, market, market imperfections, is the market uh, functioning perfectly here? Perfectly never, yeah. uh, but it, it functions on a pretty high level uh, in terms of a, a, a producer anticipating what the buyer wants on a daily basis. So at the chain store level, let's use the bread on the bread shelves. Uh, every day uh, a chain store anticipates they're gonna sell X amount of bread because the records show that this is about what they'll sell. Um, they anticipate they're going to buy, sell this many radishes, this much celery, this much, you know, whatever fruits in season, uh, or fruit that's not in season but's coming from an export uh, import. And so the drivers behind these buyers, the buyers that put this stuff on the shelf, that purchase the per, the, the the buyers, they're driven by uh, their ability to have a, par, a pros, um, I'm sorry, the, a profit margin because they aren't throwing product away. And they're buying it close to what they anticipate the buyer wants. The buyers want. Um, that's that's a standard just sell and buy. The push and pull of, of what we see out of restaurants, especially fast foods, in terms of the two for one, or at the store where you have a, a special line item to say, oh, we're going to give away you know free sweet corn today. Come on in, or, or some other product because they know that brings people into the store to try and create more demand. That challenge of competition between all the retailers, whether like we had 50 years ago, 40 years ago, where we had multiple chain stores, multiple, multiple chain stores, and not the big conglomerates that we have now, but it still drives the same challenge. How do you get more consumers into your store than his store? How do I get them to buy more products than what they normally would? Um, that, that's a driver that we, we witness every day. I remember when I used to do produce sales, I could call up any number of chain stores and say, I'm long on zucchini today. Can you help me out? I'm going to send it to you. And the guy would go out there and change the sign you know, when the truck showed in and sell it for less because I sold it for less. We don't see that. That's one uh, system that's not working as well. Uh, produce should reflect what the cost at the, at the farm is. And uh, in many cases, I don't see that necessarily the case in, 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 across the board. Although generally when we have an oversupply of a certain kind of product, peaches to whatever it is, you'll see the prices drop in the store down to some level that uh, people say, I'll buy some of that because it's cheaper than I remember seeing it. So my, my, my point is um, the dynamics between the consumer and the buyer are, are, are always going to be at play in how our supply is driven or how our, our, our production it, it, it responds. I don't know Ultimately if that helps. Comes, comes up to us. Michael Demick. Yeah, real quick, I, I, I just want to say that if you look, going back to what we said at the very beginning of this uh, event here, um, food is very inexpensive relative to other things in our culture, and the value of it allows it to be wasted. And some of the reasons are, I think, um, we have a subsidy system that uh, you know, promotes the idea of low-cost inputs for manufacturing, you know, corn, soy, the big commodity crops. Um, I think the water subsidies that we that will, uh, the, the pricing of water for farmers is another thing that affects allows us to have in a less less expensive food now i think it is good to have abundance we want to have abundance but if you really want to get at the things that make food cheap and allow for waste you have to think about those things we'll have to end it there i want to thank jonathan bloom uh, michael dimick and ag kawamura for their comments here today at climate one at the commonwealth club i'm greg dalton thank you all for coming thank you, thank you.